that uh, I was getting close to closing up the uh, worldview and mindset uh, series before I ended up uh, doing every verse in the Bible because that's really what you have to do to get the biblical mindset and worldview. Uh, what I want to do, one of the problems with a long series is that when you get to the end, you can't remember the beginning. Um, and we have a tendency uh, in our culture to always be looking for something new, and so we're more stimulated by that. And when people start repeating things, then we go, gee, I already heard that. Even though we have to hear things several times before they really lock in. So one of the difficulties of teaching in this context is to say things in different ways, even though you're saying the same thing, hoping that ultimately it'll catch and lock into people. And every once in a while, something that I've said uh, gets said by someone, another professor or, or uh, someone in a conversation that lets me know something that I've been trying to teach has locked in and it's now theirs. Um, uh, and I don't really care whether they remember whether I gave that to them or not because there is nothing that I am teaching that's original. It's all coming from the text, right? So uh, that's not what this is about. It's really about the fact that we need to know this. So there's always been a struggle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overview the entire series in this one time, and hopefully then you can go back and look at that. So if, if what I say makes perfect sense to you, then you have done well, Grasshopper. Uh, if, if some of it you go, I don't remember him talking about that, uh, you're a typical American. And if you say, I don't remember any of this, uh, you either weren't here or you weren't all here. <laughs> so uh, there's always been a struggle between the perspective of God and the perspective of man from the Garden of Eden. The idea that God knew what was best was challenged by Satan so that Eve was deceived and ultimately Adam made a choice to sin. And the story of mankind is a, a battle of worldview. Uh, is reality as God says it is, or is it as it appears to us? And the battle of worldviews uh, has been aggravated because of Babel, uh, when God changed the worldview of man into the worldviews of men uh, and created cultures and language. Now, God's plan is to redeem those cultures and languages, so not everything in them is bad and evil. It's just like us. We're created in the image of God, but we are marred by sin. God is going to redeem us, uh, and that will keep part of us intact and, and complete us. So we have to see this in that context. For us, specifically Gentile Judeo-Christians, in a post-Christian America and a post-modern America, this battle for worldviews is of great significance for us and for our children, particularly for the children and the grandchildren. So this series has tried to address the worldview from a biblical perspective and uh, also considered the mindset uh, in that context. My goal has been to make the issue clearer for you and to assist you in maintaining a biblical worldview and mindset and creating it in your children. So, what is a worldview? term coined first by Immanuel Kant in the late 1700s. Really, it's about perspective. Uh, if I take this room and I look at the world, at the room from this perspective, it's very different than if I'm standing on the opposite side and looking at it from there. That's just a, a focus difference. 
but but it's a greater difference, and that might be equivalent to how human worldviews are relative to each other. But God's concept of worldview is very different. So to remind you, I'd like you to look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 13. Isaiah 55, 6 through 13. The scripture tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. Catch that. You are to forsake your way and forsake your thoughts. uh, And return to the Lord because you're going to go his way. And you're going to follow his thoughts. And he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly Pardon, Uh, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You will go out with joy and be led forth with peace and the mountain and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come in. And, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which shall not be cut off. So what God says is, look, you have to not go your way, humans. You have to go my way. You have to not use your thoughts. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the way is the way of death. And so we need a biblical worldview in order to engage this life and the world to come. So, what about the human worldview? Well, the human worldview uh, comes from several sources, and I talked about these. It comes from peoplehood, it comes from language, it comes from a culture-religion combination, and it comes from an environment that is all experienced and internalized into us. So I want to talk about each one of those just for a moment. First of all, peoplehood. Uh, Worldview is a shared phenomenon. It's about belonging to a group of people and have an identity with them. We live in the West where we have individualism and in our postmodern world, radical individualism. And the danger of radical individualism is that people can't get along. Boy, you just have to spend a little time in the, in the conversations in Facebook to realize that, that there are uh, idiots out there. Now, I'm using the word in a technical sense. I don't mean they're just dummies. They're out there too. But I'm talking about peop- people who are so... The word idiot is actually an old psychological term. On the IQ test, the very lowest score you could get was the score of an idiot. The score above that was the moron. Those terms began to be used to call people names, so psychology doesn't use them anymore. But the idea was that you were so idiosyncratic, you were so individualistic, you were so unique in your thinking that you didn't share anything with anyone, and that limits intelligence. Because intelligence 
is more shared, and that's why we use the term common sense, that which we have in common. So the idea is that we live in a radical individual post-modern world where this next generation is growing up with every random thought in their head is valid and cannot be uh, challenged because it's theirs. And that leads to arrogance and that leads to narcissism and that leads to uh, conflict, terrible conflict between people. So what you end up with then is strong personalities begin to control. So being part of a people, being part of a community, being part of an identity that is shared with other people is part of what's important for a worldview. Our mindset is individual, but our worldview must be shared. Secondly, it's all done within the context of language. We think using our language. If you try to have a thought and you don't use a word, you can't do it. You can, the closest you can come to is an emotion, but then you have a word that expresses it or describes it. So language is very important. Now, Adam and Eve had language. Language has been human from our creation. But up until the time of Noah, all the world had one language. And that language carried on after Noah up until Babel. And it was at Babel that God divided the languages, and in dividing the languages, he created separate peoples or nations. And each one would have their own identity and their own language and then develop their own culture and religion. And in that context, they would see themselves as correct and other people as odd. And from that point, the nations learned war and aggression against each other. It was a classic divide-and-conquer concept that God did in Genesis chapter 11. So as those groups separated into different land areas and using different languages and developing different cultures and perspectives of God, we got the nations. And now the worldviews of human beings were completely different, not only from God, but from each other as well. And then God said, I will now reveal my thoughts. I will now reveal my ways. I will now reveal my worldview so that it can be understood and be a light to these nations that I have created. And he did that, according to Genesis chapter 12, by calling a man named Avram and bringing him out of his land and out of his people and out of his context to be a holy people that would be the people of God. And so God created a people, we call them Israel, or popularly we call them the Jews. There was a language that they had that God would reveal his thoughts and behavior in, his pathway, that was Hebrew, not Greek. There was a culture, religion, a way of life that he would develop. That became Judaism. There was an environment that that was tied to the promised land. And there was an experience that people would have by the doing of the commandments of God. So that what would happen is this people of Israel would become the embodiment ultimately of the worldview of God and would be a light to the nations. 
and that from them would come the Messiah who would be, in fact, God in flesh to be the ultimate light of the world and bring salvation to the Jew first and also to the nations. Because God had said to Abraham, in you all the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed. Now this gives observant Jewish people in the land an advantage that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3. What advantage has the Jews? Much in every way. Why? Because they are the people. They have the language. They have the culture, religion, context. They obey the text to understand it. And they, they are not only closer to that light, they are in, in, in fact that light to the nations. Now, that means that a Jew who's been assimilated, a Jew who is disobedient, an Israel who is pushed into diaspora, loses some of that advantage. But the advantage is given to them collectively and communally. And Paul says that's really important. But he also mentions in Romans that we Gentiles, to some extent, also have some of that built into us, because after all, we were created in the image of God too. But there is an advantage for the Jew. And that biblical worldview that we need to have is found in that people and that language and that land and that experience of obedience that comes out of the scriptures. Very important for us as an extension of them, not a replacement of them, an extension of them to understand. Now what about the mindset? Well, if that is inherent in the group and mindset is in the group, what about the individual? Well, I can take it or leave it, right? Now, you know what happens when you are in a large group of people. When they move, you move. And when they go this direction, you go this direction. There's, there's peer pressure. Uh, there's there's uh, peer pressure. There's also laziness on our part. Well, they're all going this way. This must be the way to go. And then you realize that they're all going up, having to turn around. And you say, why did I follow that idiot? Because you're an idiot too, right? Now, that's, that's what happens. That we, we have a tendency to go with the flow because we're mentally lazy. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to have a biblical mindset. And that mindset is different than the worldview because this one is an attitude. And I've talked about that all through the series in relationship. I want to remind you again what that is. The biblical mindset involves three things. It begins with humility. Humility is to realize that you don't have the answers. That you are not able to be self-sufficient. That you do not have a superiority. We are all breathing dirt. And we are all just in desperate need of God and each other. And even that which we have that makes us different from someone else was given to us by God. So we have no place of boasting as if we earned it ourselves. Now this flies in the face of America. So the biblical worldview is humility. The American worldview is self-esteem, self uh, 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 competence, self-everything, you know. It's the idea of arrogance. 
It's the idea of pride. It's the idea of, of boasting. It's the idea of, of uh, you know, this is your life and you're going to live it and everybody else better get out of your way. Very different world. Humility versus arrogance. Secondly, because you don't have it all together, humility is not denying what you do have. So if you're very good at playing an instrument and somebody says to you, gee, that was very nice, you don't say, no, it wasn't. That's not humble, that's a lie. Okay? The issue is, you didn't get that talent on your own. It was given to you by God. So you can appreciate that. I'm, I, I enjoy playing. You can do that. That's not, that's not an, against humility. False humility is, is a ridiculous thing. We are to think of ourselves not more highly than we ought. We're not also to dump on ourselves. We're to think accurately. I do some things better than other people. I do some things worse than other people. I have need of people in this area of my life. I have something to give to people in this area of my life. That's an appropriate self-evaluation. Uh, that has nothing to do with arrogance. And it allows a person to still be humble and, and meek in that sense. So, because we are humble, we have to trust. Now, who do we trust? Can't trust ourselves. We'd be back to arrogance. Uh, we can't always trust others because they suffer from the same disease we do. So, the one we trust is God who reveals to us his ways and his thoughts. And that's really what this is about. Faith or trust of God is part of humility. The opposite of that is self-reliance. I don't need God. I can do this myself. God, if I get to a place where I need you, I'll let you know. But I'm on my own here. You know, the old commercial that I think goes back maybe 40 years. I'd rather do it myself, right? That kind of thing uh, is the cultural framework. And so if I am humble and if I am trusting, then I will do what God says. God, I need you. Well, then do it this way. Well, I don't think I like it that way. Now I'm back on the other side again, right? Humility says, I don't know the way, but I trust God that you know the way. Then God speaks. And we either trust that and obey, or we're back on the other side again, which is rebellion. Well, is there another way to do it? How little do I have to do? All of that is part of the other mindset. So what's our mindset? Our mindset is to be humble before God. That makes us teachable. Trust God and obedient to God that we may grow in grace and in knowledge. And then we have to teach that to our children. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to demonstrate what the will of God is. His thoughts and his ways, that which is good and acceptable and complete. So, all of this ties together in the, in the way that we're to operate. Now, in our case, we are up against the Western cultural worldview history. And that history has a little bit of biblical worldview and a little bit of cultural worldview. And it's splattered together in a way that makes it difficult. Because sometimes it sounds like our culture is being biblical, and sometimes it sounds like our culture is being rebellious. And that's because it has these two things. So I talked about how that worked. And I gave you the basic history of worldviews 
in this culture. I'll do that really quickly again. In the ancient world, there was the Greco-Roman worldview and the Judeo-Christian worldview. The Greco-Roman worldview came out of the philosophers and the speculators and the mythologies of the Greeks and the Romans. And it basically had a view that you look at reality and you try to interpret it based on what the gods are trying to teach you. So the person who says, what is God trying to teach me, is not talking Judeo-Christian, they're talking Greco-Roman. And the Greco-Romans would look and say, if things are going bad, God's mad, or the gods are mad. Things are going good, the gods are blessing me, i got to please the gods, I'll figure that out when I do this, it works. And it just reinforces superstition. If that sounded Christian to you, you've not been paying attention. Right? But it sounds Christian to a lot of people. On the other hand, were the Greco-Rome, I mean the Judeo-Christians. The Judeo-Christians said, God has spoken to us. We must hear him because his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We will not see what God wants by looking at the circumstances. We will look at God's word to see how to function in those circumstances through the light of revelation of God. Those two worlds came together in the Roman Empire and created the pre-modern worldview that ultimately is the foundation for American culture. And that, that pre-modern worldview was a mixing of the Judeo-Christian into the Greco-Roman world. Not an equal mixing of both. Okay? Think of the, uh, the Greco-Roman as a stew and the Judeo-Christian as seasonings. It gives flavor, but it's not the substance. The substance of our American culture is not Judeo-Christian, it's Greco-Roman. And we've seen that because it's losing its, the salt is losing its saltiness in that context. And we're going back to the old Greco-Roman ways. Now, the battle in that mixing was they had to get rid of something. And what they got rid of was paganism. They didn't get rid of superstition. They just got rid of paganism. And so there's very little paganism left in the world. I know on Facebook everybody thinks this is pagan and that is pagan. Those people don't know what pagan is. Paganism died in the merging of these two things. But superstition remained. And in the Dark Ages, superstition reigned and corruption of the clergy created such a problem. And then the Black Death and, and other movements created a need for a rethinking of all this. And that's what the modern world was. The modern world began to look at things different. And it didn't go with paganism. It wasn't a mixture into Judeo-Christian religion back to paganism. It now went to secularism. And secularism became the battle of the modern age. And the modern battle came up with three basic worldviews. And those worldviews go from about the 1400s to the 1960s. And you are a product, if you're my age, of the modern world. And if you are uh, uh, under 20, uh, you're a product of the postmodern world. But the modern world thinks this way. One of three ways. We don't need God. We just need science. 
and we can figure out all our problems and make a better world. And then you fight it politically. Do we do that by government? Do we do that by individual freedom? All that, all those things. That's not Christian discussion. That's, that's the libertarian discussion of the self-governing uh, modernist. Okay? Or you take a religious perspective. I'm going to keep my Bible. What do I do with science and secularism? Well, two views. One's conservative. I will stay with the Word of God and I will only accept from that what doesn't conflict with this. Or, the liberal religious one, I will take the, the scientific and secular and keep as much of the Bible as I can if it doesn't conflict with that. Okay? So if it conflicts with the Scriptures and I'm liberal theologically, then the Scriptures have to be reinterpreted. If I am conservative theologically, the science has to be questioned. Okay? That's the modern world. And that got separated uh, from us in the 1960s through a number of things that brought us into the postmodern world. And the postmodern world uh, looks like this. We don't need truth because there ain't no truth. There's my way of seeing it, your way of seeing it. There's no good guy, there's no bad guy. There's just you and me and we just disagree. Okay? Exactly. That could be a song, right? So, I know. So the idea is, uh, it's, it's just whatever I think. There's no truth, so let's don't judge each other. Let's just be tolerant of each other. My way is my way. Your way is your way. Don't get it on me and, and we'll be fine. And I can live in my own highly radical individual world with my perspective of reality and you can have yours and I'll just get along with people who are similar to me and I'll tolerate everybody else because after all, none of this matters anyway. And there's really only two groups of, of postmoderns, secular postmoderns, who are just themselves and they are their own God, and religious postmoderns who somehow drag God into it, but God thinks like them. God feels like them, God acts like them. They don't act like God, they don't think like God, they don't follow God, God follows them. And they call themselves Christians but they're doing it with a postmodern worldview. That's the one that your children are going to grow up in, are already well immersed in, and if you don't understand that difference and give them truth and bring them light, they are going to use the very words you use, meaning something totally different. And that will be a problem. So, I've covered worldview and mindset as what it is. I've talked about the history of the worldviews. The last section that we did was the content of worldview. I talked about the content. The biblical worldview has not been lost. It's been obscured and it's been diluted. The carriers of the biblical worldview, Israel, and to a lesser extent the Hebraic-minded Christians, have been scattered across the world and faced two problems. 
assimilation, becoming part of that world, or persecution. See, because if you become part of the world, then they accept you. When you separate a little bit, then you become weird and they persecute you. So that's the battle of being in diaspora. And when a a Gentile becomes a believer, part of the kingdom of God and connected with Israel, they become, in a sense, a stranger in their own culture. And therefore in diaspora as well. So, we have to uh, watch out because there's been a popular, culturally adapted Christianity. And this has also happened to some extent in Judaism. That dilutes the biblical worldview and makes the Bible reinforce the American culture and the American dream and all of that kind of stuff. And the, and the, the TV and, and religious world is filled with that stuff. So we have to focus on the content of the biblical worldview using a biblical mindset of humility, trust of God, and lordship obedience in order to regain a clearer understanding of that. So I talked about that using several concepts. Could have done more, but these, I think, are the big ones. First of all, I gave you what I call the triplets, faith, hope, and love. Hope is not wishing for something Hope is a promise made by God. God makes a promise that becomes your hope. Therefore, if you don't know the promises of God, you have no hope. That's why we were described by Paul as Gentiles who were without God and without hope in the world. Because we had hopes, but they were our own wishing. Now we have promises that in Him are yes and amen. You see how all the verses come together in that context? And so what we have is a hope that is of the kingdom to come and the new creation and all that God is providing so that that becomes our focus. That is our hope. And we therefore then trust or have faith in the one who made the promise. Now, we have hope in the one who made the promise because he will test whether we trust him or the promise. That was the Abraham thing. Abraham, now take the promise and kill it. Do you trust me or the promise? A lot of people are trying to make the promise happen and then say, thank God the promise happened. No, that's the Hagar plan. We're not going to do that. Okay? So the biblical worldview shows up in these narratives. Right? And then ultimately, that faith has to do something. And it acts by love. Care for another at your expense. So what are the... The hope is the promise of God. The trust is that I believe that he who promised is able to do what he said. I will trust him. Therefore, I will now obey him in love. Now with that comes a mindset that's really critical, an attitude of gratitude, or what we call thankfulness. To be thankful is to be grateful for the light that has been shed upon us so that we know where we're going and why we're going. And we know whom we have believed. And we are persuaded that he's able to keep what we've committed against that day. In other words, we're thankful that we're not going through this mess alone. And therefore, you can be thankful in everything. The attitude of gratitude is one that keeps you humble. 
because the one who believed it was all entitled isn't grateful. You notice that? When somebody knows what you're going to do, they expect you to do it, and, and you have done it enough, they're not, they don't, they're not grateful anymore. They just expect, hey, when, it, when is it coming? Well, what do you mean? Well, you gave it to me yesterday, you gave it to me the day before. We have a tendency to lose our thankfulness. And it's good for us to remember that uh, you know, our food and our clothing and our, our, the air that we breathe and our life itself all comes from God. And therefore, we can be thankful. And we can trust the one who has given that to us. Then, as we talk about the issue of obedience, we struggled with the word of lordship. God has created us, and God has redeemed us. Therefore, he can judge us, and he can tell us what to do. And therefore, we struggle with lordship. Now, we struggle because we have three temptations. I know in the music group there was four, but there's three temptations in the Bible. Okay? I'm not going to do any temptation songs, but they're going through my head right now. Okay? And I'm not going to dance. So, uh... Uh, no, I can't do it. So, uh, uh, one temptation comes from the flesh, the old man. Okay? The desires and the drives of the body say, I want what I want. I want it now. And if you get in my way, I will hurt you. Okay? That flesh rises up, and you know it. It's the pro- this first of the year. Everybody go. I'm going to lose weight, and your body says, "You want to bet? Yeah. I worked real hard to get this, and I'm not giving it up easy." Right? That's the flesh. That's the way it works. Okay. The second temptation is the world. The culture says, "Stay in line. Where are we going? We don't know, but we're making good time. Just keep going with us." Right? The culture just says, do it our way. We have a new fashion. We have a new thing. We have a new gizmo. We have a new car. You can't use last year's car. You need the new car. You've got to stay up with us. Keep up with us. Stay with the culture. And behind all that is a spiritual battle where Satan says, all I have to do is make it look godly. And these idiot Christians, I'm using the term the same way, these very individual Christians will say, I don't need to go in the old paths. I can do this path and stay in the, in the camp. Okay? So the world, the flesh, and the devil are tempting us, and it, it's very hard to follow and obey the Lord. Thank God we have grace. The favor of the Lord is upon us. And so as we humble ourselves before the Lord and acknowledge our struggle. And seek the Lord while he may be found. He, he en- enables us to battle against the flesh and the world and the devil. Not in complete success, but in an increasing ability to reach a state where we can stand and then move to another state where we can stand. We fall off, we get back on. In other words, we now know that this struggle leads to a greater thing. And so we have, as Paul said... A battle. I wish I could just leave this world and go be with the Lord now, which is far better. But to stay here and to struggle with my fellow believers is better for them because this is a communal thing. And therefore, I, my gifts and my abilities have to be used in the community and I will do that. And that becomes our faith direction. 
And that faith direction requires that we keep the biblical worldview communally within us and the mindset in our individual commitments and that we stay in community and we make sure that the next generation gets this. And that's why Deuteronomy says, Israel, you shall do these things and you shall diligently teach them to your children. Because... The day is coming when you're going to live in houses you didn't build. And you're going to eat food you didn't plant. And you're going to eat all this stuff and you're going to forget me. And that assimilation into the world is going to happen. And you're going to worship gods that your fathers didn't know. And you will violate my commandments and I will have to punish you. And so the struggle is one to teach this to our children so that they will come along with us and not go the way of the world. So for us, members of the Disciple Center, this next year is going to be one to reinforce the biblical worldview and mindset in ourselves and to teach it diligently to our children and grandchildren through our catechism. We're not going to do this because we're Israel. This passage that I just uh, quoted is for Israel, but because we have been called out also as a people of God, joined into that one body, to share in that one hope with them, that there may be one flock, as Jesus said, and one shepherd. So, we will be trying to do that and reinforcing each other throughout this next year. And if God gives us grace and favor, as I expect He will, and we become obedient, and we humble ourselves to learn and to do and to struggle with this. Uh, We will see a great uh, benefit for our children and for ourselves and for the kingdom of God, Uh, not because we are anything, but because He is everything. Let's pray.